Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens, publisher and editor of FilmJerk.com. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you hear and you haven't done so already, please make sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcatching source. Good reviews and ratings are amongst the most effective ways for an independent podcast like this one to break away from the pack, and you can even do it while you're listening to the episode. On this episode, we'll be continuing with our ongoing series of Orphan Films, movies that were the sole release from their distributor. Our first movie this week is a movie that even I had never heard of until I started doing the research for the next movie I'm going to be talking about today. While I was verifying what I remember about that movie from its release in 1986, I discovered I was right and wrong about who distributed it, but happily discovered this film, which was produced by the same company as the other film, and happened to also be the only film distributed by the company who put it out into theaters, which in this case was the company that produced it. I'll try to clear that up a bit. In the early 1980s, a couple of would-be filmmakers Robert Berg and Lou Wills created a production company called Vandom International Pictures in order to develop and produce independent feature films to be written and directed by Berg. In 1984, they would start production on their first film, an action film that was neither written nor directed by Berg. But if you have the chance to make a movie, even if it's not what you planned on doing first, you take it, because you never know if you'll ever get another chance. The movie, written by former Dean Martin Show and Carol Burnett show writer Robert Hilliard, was not the kind of movie one would expect from a former writer for Dean Martin and Carol Burnett. Entitled The Milkman, the story told the tale of a New York City district attorney who secretly runs a cocaine smuggling ring down in the Lone Star State. But when one of his nemesises from the Big Apple tries to move in on his operation, the DA quits his job and heads south to keep things intact. Despite their status as first-time filmmakers, Berg and Wills were able to sign a couple of name actors to appear in their film. Vince Edwards, best known for his six-year run as Dr. Ben Casey on television, would be cast as the DA, while character actor Paul L. Smith, who memorably appeared as Bluto in Robert Altman's musical version of Popeye in 1980, played the gangster who wanted to muscle in on the drug operation. Directed by first-time director Douglas F. O'Neans, the Milkman would shoot throughout the Beaumont, Texas region for four weeks during June and July of 1984. And sometime during post-production, the two producers would change the name of the movie to Snowline. That's Snow, S-N-O, dash, line. You know, because cocaine. Along with the new title would come a new teaser poster that would be sent to theaters in hopes of securing some theatrical runs. The poster would belie the main storyline of the movie by concentrating on four of the supporting characters, making it look like some kind of cross between Miami Vice and some mid-70s pre-Smoking the Bandit Burt Reynolds movie like W.W. and the Dixie Dance Kings. And this is the actual tagline used on the poster. Frankie wanted fast cars and women. Victor wanted a fix. Michael wanted revenge. And Eddie had a plan, but it meant taking it on the snow line. Yeah, I wouldn't know what the hell that meant if I were a theater goer in 1984 and saw that poster hanging in the lobby of my local movieplex. 
When Vandom completed post-production on the film, they would send screening copies to many of the studio and independent distributors to make a deal, but would receive no bites outside of a video distribution deal with Vestron Video, who themselves would soon enter the theatrical distribution game. But that's another story for another show. But one of the conditions of the deal Vestron would place on the deal is that Vandom would need to get the film into theaters first, because theatrical was and continues to be an important part of a movie's life cycle. But how do you get a movie into theaters if nobody wants to distribute your movie? Berg and Wills took it upon themselves to distribute the film to theaters. Now, here's where it gets complicated. Vandom would release the film into theaters, at least in and around Beaumont, Texas, on Friday, September 13, 1985, but since it doesn't appear to have been released in Los Angeles or New York City, and I have no access to the Beaumont Enterprise newspaper archives, I cannot tell you how many theaters it played in that day, or how well it did, or really even which title it was released under. Because some records indicate the movie was released into theaters as The Texas Godfather, which makes sense with its partially mafia-based storyline. Some records indicate it was released as Snowline, which also makes sense, but it's not as good a title as The Texas Godfather. But no matter how many theaters it played in, or how well it did, or even what title it was released under, it appears the movie never played in any theaters outside of Southeast Texas. Vestron Video would release the movie onto VHS in 1986, with a variety of titles depending on what part of the world you were living in. In many countries, it would be released as The Texas Godfather. In some countries, it would be released as Snowline, but it would get new artwork that made the film look like a Mad Max movie. In France, the video box would keep the Mad Max rip-off artwork, but be released as Cocaine Connection. Not THE Cocaine Connection, just Cocaine Connection. With their first film under their belt, they were able to find financing for their second film, which this time would be co-written and be directed by Robert Burke. Alongside Texas Godfather writer Robert Hilliard, Burke's directing debut would be a broad comedy about a bank executive who is under the dual strain of discovering some of his employees stealing money from his bank and his wife demanding he get a vasectomy after she gives birth to, wait for it, their eighth child. The aptly titled Vasectomy, a Delicate Matter, would have a better-known cast than Texas Godfather, including Paul Sorvino, Abe Vigoda, and Lorne Green, along with several actors from The Texas Godfather, including a young actress named Cassandra Edwards, making her lead debut as Sorvino's put-upon wife. Like Texas Godfather, Vasectomy would be shot in and around Beaumont, Texas during the summer of 1985, and like Texas Godfather, Vasectomy would be pretty much ignored by every distributor once the film was completed. The only offer Vandom would get was from a company called Seymour Board & Associates, which was actually a sub-distributor for independent distributors like New Line and Miramax, whose specialty was the southern markets like Texas and Florida, and the company whom Berg and Wills had consulted with when they were planning the release of Texas Godfather. So while Seymour Borden Associates had assisted a number of distributors to get their films into theaters in the South during the 70s and 80s, they were never credited with those releases, 
and they had never released a movie they had acquired themselves. So despite not having any experience releasing a movie in major markets like Los Angeles or New York City, Vandem and Board went all in on the release, selecting September 26, 1986 as their release date. The film would open in about 400 theaters nationwide, including on 80 screens in New York City and 41 in Los Angeles. The problem was, Vasectomy would have the luck of opening against a film that would become not just a smash hit, but a cultural milestone. Crocodile Dundee. Not that anyone at Vandom or Board could have possibly known when they picked that release date, that this little movie from Australia with no stars would explode into the American consciousness the way that it did. Nor did it help that the few newspapers who even reviewed the film were not very kind in their assessments. Critic Janet Maslin of the New York Times, usually rather verbose with her reviews, devoted a mere 199 words to her very negative critique of the movie. Kevin Thomas of the Los Angeles Times would devote a bit more space to his review, but the assessment would be similar to Maslin's, calling the endeavor very depressing. The film would be out of theaters after only two weeks, with a gross of less than half a million dollars. And Vandom would never make or release another film. Paul Sorvino's career would get a major boost in 2000 when Martin Scorsese cast the actor in Goodfellas, and his visage adorned many of the advertising materials for the film, alongside Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci and Ray Liotta. Cassandra Edwards would leave acting after only one more role, as a colleague of Vince Edwards' Dr. Ben Casey, in a 1988 TV movie pilot for a proposed updated series. That show would not get picked up. And for Lauren Green, the star of Bonanza and Battlestar Galactica, Vasectomy would be his final appearance on screen. He would pass away less than a year after the movie was released. Both Vandom International Films, Texas Godfather, and Vasectomy, A Delicate Matter, have been unavailable for home viewing in any form since their VHS releases more than 30 years ago. You can find a Japanese subtitled copy of a Texas Godfather VHS tape on YouTube under the Snowline title, but Vasectomy is nearly impossible to find anywhere. Our third film today, like Texas Godfather, is one that was known by multiple titles. Back in 1985, Pamela Siegel was an 18-year-old actress who had made her film debut three years earlier as Dolores Rebchuk in 1982's Grease 2 and had co-starred on The Facts of Life in 1983 and 1984. Paul Schneider was an up-and-coming director whose first film, 1983's Sweetwater, was still waiting to be picked up for distribution, despite having a bona fide star in the lead, Diane Ladd. But despite the lack of enthusiasm from distributors for his film, Schneider would get hired to direct another film, Willie Millie, based on a 1968 story by New York Times book review writer Alan H. Friedman, in which a young tomboy who has always wondered what it was like to be a boy wakes up one morning to discover she is now indeed a boy. Schneider and the production team would audition hundreds of young actresses to look for just the right mix of acting and comedic timing and someone who could pass for both a boy and a girl. And Siegel would get chosen for her first leading film role. Oscar winner Patty Duke 
and character actor John Glover would be cast as Millie Willie's parents. And the film would feature up-and-coming actors Corey Parker and Seth Green in supporting roles. The film would shoot in and around Atlanta during the fall of 1985, and post-production would be completed in the spring of 1986. And as you've heard over and over again during these episodes, the film would be sent out to and rejected by practically every major and minor distributor around. There would be one small nibble from a company called Cinema Group Ventures. They were a production company themselves, having produced such films as Walter Hill's 1981 drama Southern Comfort, the 1983 Hudson Brothers comedy Hysterical, and the 1985 Penelope Spheris drama Hollywood Vice Squad. But they had never distributed a movie themselves, having made deals for their movies with the likes of 20th Century Fox and Avco Embassy Pictures. Well, that's not 100% true. Hollywood Vice Squad would be quote-unquote distributed by Cinema Group, but all the bookings and distributing of prints to theaters would be handled by various sub-distributors like Seymour Board and Associates, who specialized in specific markets. This would be the first time that they would be handling distribution on their own. And because they were a small company with limited resources, they would follow a time-tested and proven concept, regional releasing. The film would first open under the title, I Was a Teenage Boy in South Florida on May 2, 1986, before opening in the Boston-Providence region on July 22nd. But these were small releases, and there are no grosses available for those runs. Cinema Group would decide to give the film a moderate nationwide push into theaters on November 14, 1986, which happened to be my 19th birthday, opening it under the title Something Special in 182 theaters that weekend. It would gross $214,000 in its first three days, good enough for 18th place on the box office charts, with its per-screen average of $1,175, putting it far behind the other movies that happened to open that week including a 30-screen Indiana regional release of the Gene Hackman drama Hoosiers, the Wesley Snipes drama Streets of Gold, and Every Time We Say Goodbye, the forgotten Israeli-made film that featured Tom Hanks in a dramatic role for the first time in his career. To Cinema Group's credit, though, despite the relative failure of that first moderate release push, they would keep giving the film more playdates. While the film would never open in New York City, they would give it a 28 theater opening in Los Angeles on April 3, 1987, but it would be too little too late. In the end, the final reported gross for Willy Millie slash I Was a Teenage Boy slash Something Special would be just over $277,000. Pamela Siegel would struggle as an actress throughout her 20s until she found a measure of success as a voiceover actor in animated shows and video games in the late 1990s. Today, you know her under her married name, Pamela Adlon, the co-creator, main writer, and star of the groundbreaking FX series Better Things, based mostly on her own life as an actress and divorced mother of three girls, trying to keep everything afloat in the crazy world of Hollywood. Like our other two films today, Something Special slash Willy Millie slash I Was a Teenage Boy has never been released for home video consumption since its VHS release, although you can find multiple copies of the film on YouTube, at least in December 2021 you can. And that's our episode for today, short and sweet. 
Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again in two weeks when episode 67, Christmas 1981, is released. Our next episode of The Orphans will premiere in early 2022, and we'll take a look back at several more of these orphaned films, including the first film to star Blondie lead singer Deborah Harry, and two mid-decade dramas, one a Sally Kellerman movie whose title would be taken for a much more popular movie released two years later, and one a low-budget sci-fi drama featuring one of the stars of the early 80s cult show Square Pegs. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website at filmjerk.com for extra materials about the movies we covered on this episode. The Film Jerk podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.